update the Mike Miller, my friend that had prostate surgery um, last week. He's doing great. He was sending me text messages this morning saying he'd like to thank all of you for praying for him. He really felt covered by prayer. Um, so thank you for doing that. He was also busting my chops about some other stuff too, but that, so I know he's doing well. Um, we kind of have that, that kind of nice relationship where we can pick on each other. But he, um, he gave me the book that I kind of was, that's not the inspiration for the whole series. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. But he gave me that book years ago. And so I sent him as he was in recovery. He's like, hey man, like you still have influence over me. Don't know if that's good or bad, but you know, this is what I was thinking of during the Advent season, that love in action is what we, well, I think we need to see more in our faith in this world, that we need to see love put into action. We can talk about it all day long, and we can have sermons about it all day long, but when we put that love into action, then that speaks volumes to all kinds of people. It speaks volumes to people who would never listen to you do a Bible study about Jesus or want to hear about Jesus, but if they see the love pouring out of you, then they may be open to that conversation. So we've looked at Hebrews chapter 11 for the last couple of weeks, and we've seen love put into action through faith in Abraham. We've seen love put in, into action through Moses and his obedience. And today we're going to see kind of this hall of heroes expand into not just the couple like big pillars of the faith that we talk about a lot, but also spreads into a lot more people, including us. So let's pray, and we'll jump into Hebrews chapter 11. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day, and I pray, Lord, that you would open us up to the truth that you have for us in your word, and that we would be motivated by love, that your love for us is the example that we should have for our neighbors. So help us to love deeply, and because you loved us first, we love you, Jesus. Amen. So it's known as the Heroes of Faith, or the Hall of Heroes in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, it's pretty common to hear sermons preached about it because you see these heroes put on the pinnacle like heroes of faith the problem is none of us want the story of not being the hero and so sometimes i think it's hard for us to identify with these heroes so if i say hey you should have faith like abraham be willing to sacrifice your son with the knowledge that god's gonna save him like uh check please i think i need a different book right or like just have faith that you could walk to the well, the little Laramie River is not really that big, but you could walk to the Mississippi and you could pray a prayer and drop your staff and you could just, the Mississippi would part and there would be like tires in the bottom and then you could still walk across with people. Nobody got the pollution? Okay, never mind. Like you could have like, what kind of faith do you have? And we do that as a culture, don't we? We put heroes on pedestals. Heroes of faith, heroes of, but how often do we just let our story shine? Like, what if you haven't had a debilitating illness? What if you haven't had a lot of near-death experiences? What if you haven't had, like, massive turmoil in your family? What if you've had, like, that's a lot of our testimonies, isn't it? That we have those things, but, like, I don't want that testimony for my kids. Like, my kids have grown up in church. I don't want them to, like, have my testimony of running from God forever and finally getting smacked in the face by him at 17 and have, I don't want that for them. So what about all of us? Like, we always put the heroes up. We always, like, lift them up high. Well, what about everybody else? And that's what we get out of this hall of heroes. And I think that's the reason why the author did it. Was you start with Abraham, a faithful commitment to God. Then you have an obedience to God in Moses. And then we have what's left. We have all of these others through the Old Testament. Leading to Christmas Eve. 
which I'll give you the prequel. Chapter 12 starts, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so close and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Like It's all about Christ. So when we have all these testimonies, they point to Christ, not to yourself. So we see pretty clearly that the Bible is not something that you could really claim is just made up by a bunch of people to get something from somewhere. Because look who they lift up as heroes. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now that's like heroic faith. They marched around, the walls of Jericho fall. We often don't put into context that that also crushed the people inside Jericho. It was pretty devastating for them. But we have this great picture of faithfulness. God said, this is how you're going to defeat this enemy. This is how you're going to show the world that I am real and I am who I am. This is how it's going to happen. But then it mentions, by faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. If you're going to make up a faith, if you're going to, because people will say that, especially around Christmas time, well, that's just like a bunch of guys sat in a room and made some stuff up. That's just a bunch of stories and they put it all together and right? They're just manipulating you. They're trying to get your money. They're trying to get you to buy into something. It's not real. It's not scientific. But if you're going to create a faith, you would not lift up a prostitute as a hero of faith, would you? Like, wouldn't you put like the CEO of the company, the brilliant guy, the rising tech star, the Bill Gates, the Steve Jobs, they made cool devices. Like, what a hero. Complete and total jerk, but I like my iPhone. What a hero, right? Or we would lift up other people. Look at this all-American boy, Heisman Trophy winner, then goes off and serves his country, and now we want him to be president, correct? Like, we would do those kinds of things. But what do we say? Oh, Rahab, she was a prostitute. She made her money selling herself. We would like her to become the next president of the United States. Would that happen in this country? I think we would like to say that we are a graceful country, but are we really? As soon as someone's skeletons are brought out of their closet, what do we do? We crush them, don't we? But that's not what's happening here. We're seeing the author of Hebrews lay out that faithful commitment to God surpasses all understanding that the world would have. He lifts up Rahab. And then we get to the ones you would say would be heroes. So we get this sandwich effect. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, I think I said it right, and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Like, rah, right? Like, that's what we want. Like, oh, with the faith, we can move mountains and we can conquer all enemies and stop the mouths of lions and that's what you make Hollywood movies out of, right? That's what you do. Like you, we, we love those stories. These men who are strong and force justice, like that's what we want. But is that all of our stories? Like if I'm honest about my faith and honest about my relationship with God, I don't feel like a conquering warrior all the time. There's days I wake up and go, man, I stink. Like I did this wrong, I had this thing going on, I don't know what I'm doing right now. I just feel inadequate. I feel inadequate as a Christian, let alone as a pastor. 
I feel like I'm far from God. But then I read this, look at all these heroes. So how do we approach that? Well, we have to look at the sandwich. We have to look at how they're put together and how the author of Hebrews is doing this purposefully without any transition. So first you get Barack, Samson, you get all, like, and then we get going through, enforce justice. Well, that's all of the judges. Obtain promises. Well, that's the prophets. Every prophet obtains a promise of God and shares it with his people. Stop the mouths of lions. Who would that be in the Bible? Daniel, right? Thrown in a lion's den. How about quench the power of fire? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Escape the edge of the sword. We see that happen throughout, especially with the Maccabeans. We're made strong out of weakness. Think about Samson. Think about Samson. Prophet of God. Strong man. He had, you know, product in his hair before men normally did, I think. But, like, beautiful hair, apparently. Was able to crush people with a donkey's jaw. I don't understand if that's the weapon of choice I would pick, but apparently it worked. It was effective. He has all of these things. And what's he do? How's he mess up? He allows a woman into his bedchamber. You can't blame her. He has responsibility for himself. Everything goes crazy wrong. But then what does he do? At the end, he's proven faithful, and he's made strong out of weakness. He crushes himself, and he crushes his enemies. Isn't that kind of what, like, the stories of massive movements, the stories of, like, that's the stuff of faith. Now, could we write that if we said, uh, Samson had an affair, fell off the face of the earth? Would you even know about him? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What if the story was they just burned? Would we even care? Would we write about them? Daniel becomes snacks for lions instead of stopping them. Like we, it's, in, it's there to build up our faith. But I doubt I'll ever be in a lion's den unless I fall over at the zoo. And even then, they're so tame, they wouldn't hurt me, I wouldn't think. I'm not going to try it. Don't. But what about the rest of us? Well, that's where the author of Hebrews continues. Women receive back their dead by resurrection, telling the story of Elijah. And then there's zero transition. Goes straight to pain and suffering. Women receive back their dead by resurrection. That's like, people came back to life? Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. So some were resurrected, but then some died, and they went to a better life in eternity. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. Now, if you're writing like basic like English or you would put a transition sentence there. Like you would put it, like maybe even a new paragraph would begin. If you're just writing a story, like here's all the heroes, here's all this, there'd be some kind of transitory, like maybe even like a however or something, you would transition to a whole new thought. And if we built a movie, we would say, great heroes, pain came. But then the end of it would be like the great epicness, wouldn't it? There's just no transition. Heroes of faith, awesome things happen, or you might die. You might be raised from the dead, or you might be cut in half with a saw. And isn't that the reality? Isn't that the reality of all of our lives? Every day is not the day of a hero. Every day is not just all pain and suffering, even in the midst of a, a horrific diagnosis. It's not all pain. And so the author of Hebrews is trying to point us to this truth. 
that God is sovereign over all of our lives, whether it's heroic, faithful obedience or it's pain and suffering that comes our way. I have a preference of what I would like. I want the heroicness. I want to see the miracles. I want to see people rescued from addictions. I want to see people freed of cancer. But that's not always God's will. Sometimes persecution comes. Matter of fact, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, when he talks about God's word, or yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he tells us, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I guess I kind of want to just like tell you to not freak out. I made a, a bad decision about a year ago. Um, I got to teach a class in political science at LCCC, and I started watching the news again. That was probably a really bad idea. It was bad for my heart and probably bad for my mind. Because now I start to like worry about the world. Now, I think I should be informed, but I think when you're inundated with all of that, because I taught high school history, and when I went into ministry, I kind of just pushed all that away. I felt I was getting too negative. I felt I was getting too, like, gloom and doom, like, oh, my, what's happening in the world? And I just kind of pushed it away. And I would read the newspaper, but I just kind of stayed away from a lot of it. And then about a year ago, I started watching cable news a little bit, started reading some different websites, and I'm like, now it's like... I, the boogeyman's everywhere, right? Like, we just get kind of freaked out. And we're seeing the example here in Hebrews that everything is going to end with Christ. That everything has a purpose under heaven. Everything's going to be okay. Does that mean that you, aren't fear, you won't be freed from suffering? No, it doesn't. Does it mean persecution won't come? No, actually, Paul just told us it is coming. But we can't have this total, destroyed soul because we turn on the news. God has promised us we might be in chains. We might be cut in two. But there's always Christ. Always. He ends it in this passage. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. I don't see a lot of goat skin coats around. I'm assuming that's not a very attractive thing or a very comfortable thing. Destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Like You don't write stuff like that to get people to come to your church. Become a Christian, dress like a homeless person, and live in a cave. Like That's not what you put on the billboard. If you want to draw a crowd, you say, health, wealth, and prosperity... Jesus loves you, and you smile real pretty, and you pack, you know, a giant dome full of people. But instead, our faith very clearly says, no matter what comes our way, we are loved by the King. That love will endure forever. And then here's the key, I think, of the whole passage. Of whom the world was not worthy. Too often... Don't we wear ourselves out trying to measure up to the world? 
Don't we try to measure up in clothing, dress, style, career, income, the way you're supposed to be? Don't we, don't, does anybody else get tired of that? Like you need to have, you know, what's the average now? 1.3 kids and you've got to have this kind of house. And you bet everybody in your house better have a car. Like I re- I'll never forget as I, as I taught, as I grew up, this phenomenon happened where high school kids weren't getting their driver's license until like they're 18. What? Like, you get your license at 16 in this country, by God. Like, go get a car. That's what you do. And so even like little things like that culturally become completely different. Like, this is how it's supposed to be. And you're supposed to measure up. So you get a car. You get a job at 14. You save. Like, get a car. And I had students go, I don't, I, I, I'd rather just have fun. I don't want to have a car and work, and I can walk and ride my bike. I'm like, this is America. Like, get a car, right? But don't we do that with a hundred other things? In the last two years, the Volkswagen, um, the bus that pops up into a camper, was been reissued. Do you know why? Because millennials, the mid-20s, don't want a house. They want to travel and see the world and live in a van. Now, that existed in the 60s with bell-bottoms. And now it's all come around full circle, has it not? Like, every, there's nothing new. And so when you're constantly trying to keep up with the culture, all of a sudden, clothes have to change every three or four years. Styles have to change every three or four years. Like, why can't we just go back to the late 80s when everyone tight-rolled their blue jeans and like pegged them and like wore loafers with curly-cued shoestrings? Like, that's, that was a great style when I was in high school. Like, we go, need to go back to that. But think about everything else. They were supposed to keep up with the times. So this week... Newsweek issued its end-of-year cover story, and the end-of-year cover for Newsweek was on abortion. And essentially, just to boil it down for you, the author of the article says, Christian people just need to get over it. We're not going to get over it. We're compelled by Christ to believe in the sanctity of life and that every child is an image-bearer of God and deserves to be treated with equal dignity. We're not going to get over it. It's not going to happen. But isn't there this push? Just get over it. And what the author's telling us, we aren't worthy of this world. Those who have faith in Christ Jesus, we aren't worthy of the world. Right? The world's not worthy of us. Like, we shouldn't continually try to become like the world. We shouldn't continually go, well, you know, that's the the way the world works now. The Christian faith has continually been countercultural since its inception. Since Christ came. Think about how that worked. The whole gamut of world religions that existed on the planet before Christ Jesus said, follow these rules, worship to this altar, bring offerings to this, do this, do this, do this, and instead the God of the universe, God the Son, steps out of heaven and comes down for us. You don't find that anywhere in another world religion. Where the one who spoke your very existence into being comes to rescue you. Instead, you see, polish up, shape up, burn some stuff, bring some stuff, do the things the right way, follow the list, and then you'll be loved by this God. From the inception, Jesus has been countercultural. But then isn't the world just kind of, it's pulling itself apart. 
this week, I know you saw it in the news, and I don't have a whole lot of political commentary, but I just find it very interesting that there's a little school in Kentucky that want to do the Charlie Brown Christmas thing. I know it's been crazy all over the news, but, and they wanted to just take out the Bible part. Now, in, just from a literature, literature perspective, or just from a media perspective, you can't take out the climax of the story. That would be like, like remaking Braveheart, and you just have that last battle, he just rides off on his horse, and you're like, he didn't die, he didn't win, there's nothing, no, he just rode off. And you would just walk out of the movie going, well, that was okay, I guess. Like, there was weird, sick battle scenes, but what was the point? Or how about if Luke Skywalker never discovered that Darth Vader was his father? He just gets his hand cut off, and he jumps, and he goes, and it's all done. Like, they fight, and it's over. And you wouldn't have this, like, pinnacle climax of just, like, two guys fighting. What was that all about? And so they remove the Linus passage. They remove that whole section from the reading, and it's like, well, we want to have the cool Charlie Brown Christmas stuff. We're going to remove the climax from it. Like, why would you ever get a pine tree as a symbol of Christmas if you didn't believe in Jesus and the, the season of Christmas? Just get, like, a, you know, a fern. We want to have, like, it's, it's pulling itself apart. We aren't worthy of this world. The words, world's not worthy of us. Why? Because we have Christ Jesus. We are always going to be countercultural to the rest of the world. So you do get cancer. You do get sick. You lose your job. And people say, how are you doing? Well, I'm struggling, but I know God's going to take care of me. What? Your God? Why didn't your God just keep your job for you? Well, that's not how it works. I mean, I don't think he took my job, but he's going to get me through this. And I've got a community of people that will help me out. I've got a church family that's praying for me. Like, how crazy is that to the world on the outside? Shouldn't you be mad at that God you follow? He took your job. He took your spouse. What's his problem? Shouldn't we be angry about this? And instead, we see through the hall of heroes and the people of faith, a consistent, overwhelming love of God in the midst of great joy and the midst of great pain. That's why Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm alive, it's for Christ and the purpose of his kingdom. And if I die, I get heaven. I get eternity. So to live is Christ and to die is gain. I have a preference. I want to be here a long time. But if God snatches me of a massive stroke tomorrow, I get Jesus. I prefer to see my kids grow up. But I know if I'm gone, he will take care of my family. That is foolishness to the world. You turn on the news. Man, stuff's blowing up everywhere. There's craziness everywhere. I'm kind of scared in my own home. I'm kind of scared of what's going to happen even in good old western Laramie. I don't know. But even if somebody knocks on my door and something bad happens, I know Jesus is the goal. If your goal is happiness, it's always going to fall short. If your goal is Christ you will always find joy in the end. That's how it ends, this passage, in verse, up to verse 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had prov- provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Now, what's the author saying? The author is saying, even though all these people were faithful, 
We know that Moses and Elijah, even though they didn't know who Jesus was, we know that they were their faithfulness and the promises of the Messiah held them to eternity. Because we see in the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus approaches, he encounters Moses and Elijah. So how can Moses and Elijah be in heaven? Because they clung to the promises of the Messiah. It's proven in Scripture. So just because Old Testament people didn't know Jesus doesn't mean they aren't in heaven. If they cling to the promises of God, they'll be with us in eternity. But what the author is saying is, they didn't receive what was promised. So even though they're faithful, they never knew Jesus. They never knew the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So, God provided something better for us. It's better for you and for me to know the truth of Jesus and have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit than to have this faithful, hero-like existence we just read about. You are counted better off because you know the very words of Christ and you can have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit than if you were Abraham. It's better to know Jesus than to be Moses. And I think being Moses would be a pretty cool gig. Like you smack a rock and water comes out and a million people drink. Like, like wouldn't that just like puff you up? You have a staff and you throw it down and people freak out because it turns into a snake. Like that's awesome. You cripple a nation because of the faithfulness that you've had with the Father. And the author of Hebrews is saying it's all just a foretaste. It's better to know Jesus. That apart from him, there's nothing. There's nothing but Jesus. So we see that love really does endure. The love of Christ endures forever. And isn't that better than all the other shallow promises? Like, I'm not trying to, I don't want to ever be that pastor that says, don't give your kids presents on Christmas. I can never be that pastor, like, distract you from the fun that Christmas exists. But if we redeem it for the reason we have it, like, there's stuff coming, if UPS can make it on the roads, there's stuff coming that my wife has no clue is coming. And it's going to be awesome when she opens it. Eli and Savannah, like, they have some stuff that Amber doesn't even know that I got for them. I love to do that to her. It drives her crazy. It's like she's planning for Christmas, and, like, all of a sudden there's, like, two or three extra things. Like, where'd that? What did you do? Eh, I'm just awesome that way. Like, I love that. Like, Christmas Day will be awesome. Pajamas, cinnamon rolls for breakfast, who knows what we're having for lunch, playing, enjoying each other, just being together. But that's all garbage without the saving faith in Jesus Christ that sets us up for that joy. Because then if your joy comes in the gift of all these toys and technology, you're never satisfied. But the love that endures from God through his son Jesus Christ, that endures forever. That's an enduring love that gets you through everything else. So in about three weeks, I'm going to go to Uganda. And my job there with Training Leaders International is I'm kind of doing two things. I'm pioneering us to have a relationship with African Renewal University to bring a lot of other things in. But one of my main missions is to teach inductive Bible study to some church plant pastors. Well, why would I have to go do that? There has been a pervasive, destructive form of Christianity known as the prosperity gospel that's permeated throughout sub-Saharan Africa where it's about like you will literally have in some of the poorest areas of Africa the pastor will say as long as you give me more money 
then God will bless you. And it's not like it goes into like an offering and it goes to like a paycheck. Like he literally just like picks up the basket and just walks home with it. Driving massive cars and things you, should, you would never see in a, like completely out of touch with his congregation. Well, that's how God does blessings. Like the pastor should be the most highly paid person in the whole community. The pastor should be like the most put on a pedestal, right? That's how, and we don't see that anywhere in here. We see servant leadership consistently. Like if that was the case, then Jesus wouldn't have been born in some stinking manger, wherever that was. It would have been like in a castle and there'd been people singing. Shepherds wouldn't have shown up. It would have been like the royal court. But the image of what we have is of lowly servitude for the kingdom of God. And so I'm going over to try to help these pastors see the truth of scripture. Because when people start speaking false stuff with authority behind a pulpit with a microphone, well, that guy must be right. Like he has on a suit. He has a microphone. He has to be right. And so my whole task is not just to go, I'm not going and preaching. I'm teaching these guys how to open up the scriptures. Well, why would you have to do that? Because it's so easy for us to have a false sense of truth that enters in that's fleeting. And instead, we should be teaching consistently that the love of Christ endures forever. No matter whether you're in good times or in bad times, it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. And then secondly, this isn't your home. Like, think of how freeing it is to read of Abraham and Moses and the Hall of Heroes. They all understood that this isn't home. This is just a temporary 60 to 100 and, you know, two years if you're Gene Wheat's sister. Like, you, you have this temporary time here. This isn't home. This isn't where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be in the Garden of Eden, but it was broken by Adam and Eve, and we have suffered the consequences of sin from that moment until today. So until Jesus comes home or he takes you home, this isn't home. This is temporary. This is like that really cheap apartment you had in college. Like, that's what this is. And why would we put so much energy and focus on this world when our home is so much better. So what's the purpose while we're here? To proclaim and share the name of Jesus Christ. Like, that's your mission. Your mission is to use everything God has gifted you with and use that to share the truth of Jesus to the world. So your kids aren't just children to raise and get college educations and send them off so they can make money and take care of you when you retire. That's not the point. Your children are there to be trained and equipped to share the truth of Jesus to the world wherever he takes them. The job that you have, the career that you have, the place he's put you is for you to be trained and equipped, put food on your table, have a life to share the truth of Jesus. That's the point. If it's just about you, like think about how silly it really is. If you really believe in Jesus Christ, he's captured your heart, you are his child, then you know when you die, you go to heaven, and then eventually there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And you get a resurrected body. The Garden of Eden is reclaimed. It's remade. It's going to be perfect. So then why do you live a life that worries so much about 
stuff and collecting and status and how many likes your picture gets and all these. Like, this isn't your home. Instead, you do all those things as a tool to share the truth of the gospel. That's why we have Hebrews chapters 11 leading to 12. In this room, you all have a multitude of stories that I don't have. You have suffered loss. You have suffered pain. You have been part of great joy. You have terrific relationships. You have lost relationships. And so you have people all around you that are dying to hear those stories. Like, think of how many people in this room aren't originally from Laramie. A lot of you. Correct? So this town is known to be a very transient town, whether it's university connection or students are in and out. Like, people move a lot. So how slow are you to make connections to those people? Think about how many people are in this community that really don't envision themselves being here longer than maybe 10 years. So if you know that in the back of your head, how hard is it for you to connect with other people? So you don't have time to play around. Well, I'll talk to my neighbor maybe next year when I get to know them a little better. They might be gone. And instead, you have in you this story. Hey, you know what? Oh, you're new to the community? I was too about three or four years ago. Great. We have a shared bond here. We have a shared connection over this. Some of you have been here your whole lives. This is home. It will always be home. You've been here. So you have a stability and a rock solidness that people that are moving into this community are dying for. And look at them. They've been here forever. Their mom and dad are here. Their kids are here. The grandkids are here. You become a supreme example of stability in a community that's sometimes pretty shaky. Some of you have been through cancer and have beat it because of the hope of Christ, because of his either common grace or he really gave you a miracle. So when something happens and someone does get cancer or someone does get sick, you're able to walk into that space. If I walk into it, I've never had cancer. I, I hope I don't come across as just like the Bible guy. Well, trust Jesus. I hope that I come across with empathy and care. But you know what is even better is when someone who's been through it, who knows what chemo's like, who knows what that surgery's like, walks into that room and says, I know what you're going through. Jesus will get you through it. This is going to stink, and it's going to be awful but Christ is with you. I have a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. Some of you have raised teenagers and sent them out. I will need your help in a few years. Sometimes I'm my wits in now with a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. And I can look to you and go, how did you do this? How did you make it through this? I'm terrified of what the world is going to throw at my kids. You pray, you love them, take care of them. Like, how much more encouraging can you be? Someone new in their faith. And you, can have, you have the, the, the hindsight to go, I remember when it was really hard to understand the Bible too. And when you throw things like the Trinity at me or the hypostatic union or all these things, I'm like, ah, I remember. Stick with it. Read your Bible. Come to church. You'll get it. God saved you for a reason for you to grow. And if we would grab those and share them, 
Like you don't knock on someone's door and go, hey, heathen, you need some word. Let me read this to you. Has that ever worked? Has anybody here been saved, come to saving faith in Jesus Christ because someone knocked on your door and said, you're a wicked sinner doomed for hell. Can I please read the Bible to you? Has that ever worked? I've never known of that working. But instead, what I see working time and time again is, hey, you know what? You want to come over for dinner? You want to come to Christmas Eve service? I know, I know. You don't buy into all this stuff. But just come sing some Christmas carols with us. Come sing some songs. It'll be all right. Or, I I notice you're having some problems there. I notice things are going on. Can I help in some way? I got a friend that I go to church with that can do this, and he'll come over. I got some, she'll do that. Can I just take care of you for a while? Can we help you? And then you begin to open up. Like, why would you even help me? You don't even know me. Why would you even, how do you get through this stuff? How did you get through your cancer? The love of Christ. He got me through it, and I know this isn't my home, so I don't stress out too much. And then, for Christmas Eve, I already gave it to you, but that's where we're going to end. So you get the therefore. All of these witnesses lands at a therefore. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why do we share the stories of these witnesses? To build us up in our faith. How does your witness help others? It builds them up in their faith. Don't be afraid to share it. Share the love of Christ that's endured in you. Share the love of Christ that changed your heart. And if he hasn't done that in your life yet, I pray that he opens you up to the truth of the gospel. God doesn't promise us that everything's going to be a bed of roses. Instead, he promises his presence to hold your hand through it all. Sometimes that's a literal feeling of the presence of God, and sometimes that's some people in the church family they're going to hold your hand in the middle of pain. But don't ever forget that he loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we have together. Um, I pray, Lord, that we would really walk into Christmas over the next few days. We would enjoy the food. We would enjoy the time together, the games, the toys, the just all of it, Lord. Let us embrace it all. We don't want to be people that reject what's happening around us. But let us never forget that this world isn't worthy of us, that we are bought with a price by the king of the universe, and we are meant for something much greater than this place. Help us, Lord, with humility and with your glory in the midst. Share the truth of Jesus with those who are around us. Let us seize the opportunity of Christmas to bring some great joy of the gospel to all who would hear. We love you, Jesus. Amen.